Hello, everyone out there on the interwebs. So good to be with you for this Bible study. And as you can see, I am joined by, well, the most prestigious of guests, <laughs> my dad, Phil Dunn. Welcome to the Bible study. Well, oh, father of mine. <laughs> thank you for having me. It's a great honor. I'm a little <laughs> nervous, you know, <laughs> here with the expert. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> so um, thanks for everyone who's tracking along. And if you're just joining us, welcome. We are, Dad. Not only have I brought my father here, who is a trial attorney and skilled in the art of debate, but we also have before us what is probably the most challenging chapter in all of Mark chapter 13. Agree or disagree? Oh, yeah. Um, the, you know, I read your uh, books from seminary. So like I showed you, I showed you Barclay because you left it at the house. And so it says that this is the most difficult chapter in all of Mark. So thanks. <laughs> yeah. And also, I have my commentary here. It says almost the exact same thing. So there you go. Definitive from two people smarter than us that we're going to tackle the hardest chapter. Also, we gave Dave the hardest chapter to preach. Um, he did a really good job, but he really only covered, he in, by his own admission, two, two verses. But they were two... Two very significant verses, and so, um, you know, he, he stayed within the bounds of what was required of him in this preaching text, but our goal here is to unpack some of the more messy elements that perhaps sometimes when we're preaching to the broader church, we may um, not have time to get into or the ability to dialogue around some of those things. And what greater time to talk about the apocalypse than, than the one that we find ourselves in here, or the apocalyptic <laughs> literature. Right. And also that, um, I would also say at our staff meeting, we, we read over this because we've been doing the same format at staff meeting. And this really actually generated some really interesting conversations um, about the time that we're in. And, and so some of, the, some of these things that may not feel that interesting in other seasons, I think this one at least is, is an interesting thing to, to look at. And certainly what's interesting, I think, is that for like scholars and people that really study the Bible, this is the most fun for them. For the rest of us, we're like a little like, all right, well, we wanna talk about you know how hard it's going to be for pregnant mothers in the end times? <laughs> Let's do this. But for scholars, they love it. Okay, so one of the interesting things structurally about um, this chapter is that it's the longest discourse in all of the Gospel of Mark. So that's why it really is, the chapter is just basically one long dialogue from Jesus. So there's a couple things that I picked up um, in my reading and sort of understanding of this. One of the things that we need to really locate when we're reading this one is that this is talking a little, okay, so I guess the question we would say is, 
is this, what, what event is Jesus describing in the future, right? Is this event um, something that's going to be the end of the world that he's describing? Or is this the end of an era, right? And so most scholars say that when Jesus is talking about this great turbulent time um, where there will be violence and destruction and abomination of desolation, which we can unpack later, that all of that is most likely Jesus referring to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. Is that what you got in your reading as well? Well, that, yes, it certainly is a part of it, but I have a theory. Okay, well, let's, let's get into it. Wait, okay. And then I would also say, so in, in um, Witherington, he says that there's discussion of 70 AD, destruction of the temple, but then there's two lines that seem like they're referring to the future, like some end times future. Your theory. So my theory is, is that God invented time. Uh-huh. He exists outside of time. And we know that time can be compressed because Einstein proved that if we move at the speed of light, that time compresses. So what maybe a thousand years may seem will actually transpire in a second. So I believe the time of turbulence is all of this time. So that yes, uh, you know, it's very clear from the scripture that uh, Christ was talking about the destruction of the temple and what happened and how just catastrophic it was for the Jewish people. So, you know, not only is that magnificent temple, one of the great wonders of the world, completely destroyed as he prophesies that the Jewish people I was reading suffered almost a million casualties when that occurred and that they were starved to death. So it fits, you know, it, completely within his, uh, his prophecy because the Romans sieged that great building and structure and ultimately they were practicing cannibalism at the end. So it was as awful as Jesus predict. But there are other references in, in there to, you know, what could be considered, you know, what's going to continue to happen. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence. And so I, I personally think that that's the way it's always been. And it's that way today. And so it may be that, you know, like particularly when we're talking about the second coming, that all of this, what may seem like, you know, it's 2,000 years to us, to God, is two seconds. So time is compressed, or it's what God sees all of time at the same time. The Alpha and Omega. Right. Beginning and end. Right. So he looks at us in the moment that we're in and cares but he also knows, he sees the end, and he sees the beginning. He, see, he saw your whole life from beginning to end before you were born. 
And so he knows what part you're in right now, but he knows where you're going to go. Certainly the Bible reads like that, right? I mean, it locates the beginning, middle, and end, right? And even in the story you see that because... Yeah. Um, and it's interesting you think of Jesus as teacher. One of the things that he does is bring in the tradition and bring in the future. And especially when we're talking about um, apocalyptic imagery. Because a lot of what's running under, underneath this conversation that Jesus is having is from the book of Daniel. And the most obvious sign of that is when you read, which I just, I've just been reading through the book of Daniel um, in my devotional time, and it's a direct quote when it's talking about the abomination of desolation. That, that concept is really about how the temple is no longer the place in Daniel where God's presence dwells, because it's been destroyed, it's corrupt, and therefore it's an abomination of desolation, and it's, no, it's been completely destroyed. And so we see that in Daniel, that this is a conversation that's happening, Daniel, and we see with Jesus, it's happening when Jesus was alive and doing his public ministry, and then we also see allusions to this, um, you know, with John in Revelation in the island of Patmos for the early church, and potentially somehow that's also part of whatever the the eschatological age when it comes to its fulfillment will will bring. And the way we, we understand these things, I think we hold loosely, but in theory, I think that, you know, we do see a lot of what you're talking about in that, you know, all of these things are present for Jesus Christ, the cosmic Christ all at, at once. And I mean, that does raise interesting questions sort of about, you know, what kind of uh, omni omnipotent power Jesus had when he was on earth, but certainly he had a prophetic ability to speak into whatever the future for the temple was. And we see that come to fulfillment in 70 AD or whatever. One of the things that's interesting since I brought myself in stream of consciousness to the idea is that um, there's a question of whether Mark, when he wrote this, wrote this in like 68 AD or if he wrote it after. And that's oh, one that's of the interesting things that uh, is commented on because if he wrote it, with the early predictions of when this was written was like 68 AD, which means that he would have written this two years before it actually happened. Wow. Right, and then, or if it's after and he is then, then kind of interpreting um, Jesus's saying through the lens of what has already happened, so. That's also a subject of debate that, that's part of this conversation. So I have something that I thought yeah. was really interesting on that too because, you know, so my mind always works in terms of evidence and like a trial lawyer or whatever. So one of the things you look at is, okay, so that if he wrote it afterwards, you know, that might question sort of the authenticity of the prophecy, right? So. But what I did is I looked at Matthew and Luke, and they have the same account in, in both Matthew and Luke. And they're very similar. However, they're not exact by any means. And so one of the things you learn from t 
talking or um, examining different witnesses who see the same thing. So, so for instance, you, would, you know which dis disciple probably told Matthew and which told Luke, I can't remember, or Mark, right? So, but the, the, the thing is, is that when you have different accounts and they're saying essentially the same thing, but they add different things or they remember things a little differently, that that actually points to authenticity, that it was actually said that way. It's you're suspicious of the text or the witnesses when they say exactly the same thing from root, like they've just memorized it. You know, they got together beforehand and they got their story down and they just put it out just that way. So here you've got two independent accounts that are, that confirm, that are consistent with Mark's account, but they're a little different because they were heard by witnesses. So there's a jury instruction that says that witnesses will commonly see and hear and remember things differently and that, that you shouldn't you know, necessarily think that that's inconsistent. Yeah, that's interesting for like, yeah, how they compile things. Also, you know, in, in school, in seminary, they teach you in, in commentaries about, you know, um, you know, Mark is kind of the first, Mark is written first. And so like Matthew would have had uh, Mark as a reference point. Mm -hmm. um, and, but also they, the authors are writing to their culture. So they, they're bringing in things they remember and things that are passed in the oral tradition as they're bringing their accounts as well and you know their prayer and everything else to the telling of the story. So Matthew's longer than Mark because a lot of it is actually just building upon the, the Mark in text. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense because yeah. I noticed that when I read it. Yeah, so it, it's, you know, and then like John is written to the Gentile audience so it's very different. Yeah, um, and Luke is, you know, got his doctor brain, very systematic. So they all have their their approach through their, you know, through their own lens. And so Mark, it, Mark, it just gives you like basic raw details, and then it skips over a lot of interesting details actually in certain points because he's just really trying to drive home. Um, some of the more essential points, and in this, in this, this is like the climax of the indictment on the temple. Like this is like they've been through every kind of problem with the Jewish establishment. The Jewish establishment just decided they're gonna, you know, they're gonna set, they're gonna try and kill Jesus. They don't know how to do it, and then book ended on the other side. We see Judas is actually gonna make his deal to sell out Jesus. So it's like bookended in between is this total prediction of like what's gonna happen to the temple. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is how, um, you know, the like what is temple is a good question to always be asking. Everything in some ways, every human, every, uh, idol is a form of a temple in the sense that we're all worshiping something right and so jesus is there to to bring forward a new way of being with god 
Like the Garden of Eden was a temple. They walked in the garden with God and they, they had relationship with God in the Garden of Eden and then we see all the expressions, the, the ark, we see the tent, and you know, obviously the temple was the main place and we see that through David and Solomon, right? And the establishment of the temple. And God is really, I think a lot of um, what Christians and, and religious people struggle with is that this modalities of, of how to worship God, you know? And we see that so strongly here that the leadership has attached themselves to the temple and that mode of worship. And one of the things that I was seeing in this that I've just been learning about is um, that this temple that was gonna be brought to ruins was made of big gigantic stones. Did you read about that? Yeah. So the, the desolation of it is a desolation of these massive beautiful stones that would have been built up and they're ornate and they, you know, like you said, it was like a big thing going on. But then when you, when you learn, think of the temple having all these big stones and you then you read First Peter, First Peter talks about how the New Testament church is like living stones built on the chief cornerstone. And that is exactly the quote from 13 here. It's saying that, you know, that the, the, the stone the builders rejected becomes a cornerstone, right? So Peter picks up on that. He starts talking about that image of the stones of the temple that have been destroyed will be rebirthed by the New Testament priesthood of all believers, the living stones that are there. So I, I find that that's like, it's interesting because it's like a devastation of this localized temple. And then through Jesus, there's going to be this like outbreaking of the living stones, priesthood of all believers that's external and outside the temple. And obviously, when Jesus is crucified, the temple curtain rips open. I mean, these are, how many things do we need here to teach us? <laughs> you know, that it's basically written to Jews to tell them, like, look, if you're still doing temple worship, you're doing it wrong because Jesus has come. Like that is Mark's point. He's trying to drive it home as hard as he can. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's really significant that um, particularly because Jesus, most of his ministry was not in a building, that it was outdoors and that, you, you know, I have other, another church, a couple other churches that I work with, and, you know, one of the big issues right now is, you know, can we meet inside? And so this is a very, you know, it's a Pentecostal church, and meeting inside is really a big deal because there's an altar call every Sunday. And, you know, they're bringing, they have people who are in great distress who come forward. And so... The, you know, the idea that they can't have an altar call or how are they going to do that? And so we had a discussion about that as to whether or not, you know, you're operating legally or, you know, they got a little notice. And so they're, you know, they're, they're doing really, really well in terms of social distancing and mass and doing, you know, they're really working hard at it, but that right now isn't quite good enough. And so the they had to struggle with, well, what happens if, you know, the county really comes down on us? And, 
I said, well, you know, my son's church is meeting in a tent. And, you know, and the Sermon on the Mount. Pentecostal should know about tents, man. Yeah, yeah, you know, a, you know, a tent revival. And then I told him some of their history. I go back 30 years and I said, you know, one time that's all we had was a tent. And it was, uh, it, you, know, uh, you know, what we call a shooting gallery and, uh, you know, these, uh, you know, which is a reference to drug usage. And it's... Um, you know, it was just in the worst part of town in Oxnard, and it was just a big tent in a motel parking lot, and people just came off the streets and filled it. And, and so this idea of being married to the building, okay, was something I, you know, you know, it wasn't always like that, and what you're saying is it's really not theologically like that anymore. Yeah, that's really cool. I think that's a really good way of illustrating something that is, is very scriptural. And I think something I believe God's doing right now for the church. Because, you know, like you, like you just, you, what you said was the origins of this movement were in the street. Right. Right. And they yeah. were in the most severe, darkest part of the street. That's of, right. Of Oxnard. Yeah. In a tent. Right. Like, that's where we started. Yeah. Right? And then we, we got established. We got, you know, going. We got our modes. We learned how to make things work. Things got systematic. And then over time, we got a little comfortable. And we don't want to go back to the origins. Right? Yeah. Um, or we're just, it's revealing whether we're attached to the mode of worship instead of, what God wants to do in the moment we're in. Maybe, for, you know, there's moments where the temple and, and the comforts of the temple were very uh, important. But, you know, like, I think about this in, in the space domain, even before COVID, it was like, okay, let's talk about the homeless problem in Los Angeles. You know, like, how many churches have space and how many people are living on the street? Those are hard questions, you know, to really get a heart of God questioning around. Now, that's a, a hard thing to think about, but when we're talking about this is God's house and what does he want to do with it, um, I think that's the thing. Like, the early New Testament, like, how did God will call us back to up more pure forms of worship and out of our comfort to remind us of what the real deal is and to get us in like in the mode he was in itinerant walking right um he, the foxes you know have net no, yeah. the son of man has nowhere to lay his head at night it's it's right? scary to think you know we may have in, today have said this itinerant preacher named Jesus was homeless. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I think he lived, you know, he couch surfed maybe. <laughs> like he yeah. lived in people's houses. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, or he slept outside a lot, right? right he was yeah. traveling from one place to another. Right, in a very and temperate desert yeah, culture. Yeah, no, no tent, just on the road. Right, and, I, and you actually, so um, I think it was... Um, Francis Chan, I heard a sermon talk mm -hmm. about how you see, um, so when Jesus preaches his first sermon, this is, okay, and the way this connects is this is in contrast to the religious establishment, right? In contrast to the religious establishment, 
Jesus tempted, he's baptized, called beloved, tempted in the wilderness. His first act of public ministry is he's standing in the temple. What is his text when he's standing in the temple? His text is the Isaiah text. You set the captives right. free, right? And, you know, this is a day of jubilee for the poor and the blind will receive sight. Okay, what did the, what did the people in the temple, his hometown, do? They tried to throw him off a cliff because he said, now this is all fulfilled in, in your sight. And then, out of his rejection from the, his hometown, the religious establishment, what did he do? He left his hometown walking. And, he, and guess who was on the outskirts of town? The blind, the poor. And what did he do? He just started walking and healing and liberating, setting captives free, forgiving people's sins. And this is all outside of the established, comfortable domain and in, in the, the streets, right? And so one of the problems of cultural comfortable, like, like one of the images that keeps coming up for me is, is like a house cat, you know, like, that cultural Christianity is like a house cat. <laughs> it just keeps getting fatter and fatter and fatter until it doesn't realize that it was made to hunt, right? And that it's actually supposed to be out in the wilderness because it's an animal. And so that domestication happens for Christians and especially if we're raised in domestication we don't even know what the wild is. And so for us, the, the wild, you know, we're just touching the wild for some of us. Some people, if they're born in the streets, if they're born, you know, with difficulties and stuff, they know tomorrow's not guaranteed, right? And that was right. always a lesson we had to learn from them. But for now, everybody's kind of like in the, some form of, of a revelation around comfort. Right, and mm -hmm. we were even looking at the door here as we were walking in, right, to return to this theme again. But when we were in Lent, we pulled the church, and the, the church's number one idol they identified for the church and for the broader community is comfort. And then the next week, <laughs> we yeah. had COVID, yeah. and all of our comforts were taken away from us, and we had to learn to get shed all of our comfortableness and like what I find interesting about in this if you really get to the heart of it is it talks about those few people that are going to make it through right it's it's scary right. it's you know and then you're starting to you know there's there's reference to hell and we don't like to talk about that sure and there's reference to judgment and we don't like to talk about that. A testing yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, and the, the other thing is, is then there's the reference to the second coming. Mm -hmm. The Son of Man. And so, you know, Christian churches kind of go one of two ways on that. They're either obsessed with it, and they're, you know, just looking for that, and that's just the emphasis all the, all the time. In that way, you don't really have to do too much because you're just waiting. You're watching and you're waiting, 
All defense, no offense. Yeah, you just, you know, you're saved by grace. Just get in your holy huddle. And yeah, and you, you know, in your, in, in, your, in your church, apart from everyone else, and you're waiting for Jesus to show up because we know and we're predicting that that's going to happen and he's promised it. And, and then, you know, the other side of that is, is that, well, we may want to kind of de-emphasize, like for instance, you know, in some more liberal Christian thought, now there's, you know, pastors saying, well, there really isn't any hell because if God is love, how can there be a hell? Well, God is also holy. And he does, you know, there's plenty of references to sitting in judgment. And, and for me, I have to believe in that because of everything I've seen. I, I have to believe that there's ultimately justice. And so, you know, when we talk about the second coming, though, and this is what I really, you know, need some help with, is... Who, what Jesus is coming back? You know, so, like, for instance, it says the, he says the Son of Man will come in on clouds with power and in glory. And, you know, so a lot of times what I kind of fear is, is that we have this image that is the image that the, the you know, the Jewish hierarchy had of who the Messiah was and that we, you know, might miss the Messiah for the same reasons. And he also tells us there's going to be all these antichrists, you know, that our people are going to be using Christianity. So, you know, I think there's some tension there about, um, like, so Witherington would put in this category that there was actually a lot of... Uh, there was, a, there was end times eschatological theories in that time, too, that Jesus was dialoguing with when he's in this conversation. So the zealots in Jesus' time, they were certain that there would be a violent overthrow of the Roman Empire. And not only that, that would be the end of the world. And that's right. the messianic message, right? And yeah. so... Actually, in this, to answer your question a little bit, I think because we're locating Jesus in, in contrast to the zealot community, it gives a great case for the fact that coming with power and glory, I do not think is, is a reference. I think this is a reference to a, a peaceful um, servant, the suffering servant son of man coming into the world. And some of those allusions from Isaiah is the tradition that Jesus lives in and operates from. And a lot of the images we see in Revelation and Dante's Inferno and all that really maybe paints what we bring in baggage to this text in particular. But I don't think, we don't see in this text, actually we see in this text, Jesus correcting the zealots who are saying, we know when uh, this is going to happen. In fact, we know who the Messiah is. They had false messiahs, and that the, those false messiahs will keep coming up in the way that we would see um, political leaderships trying to fill a vacuum and say, oh, I am the, the one who's going to bring this military victory and manifest 
the end times eschatological reality of this era. And so when Jesus says, actually, you will not know the time nor the place, he's correcting that um, belief that was already present in his era. Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because that, that, it, that Jesus actually tells us that there is some limitation on his authority mm -hmm. because he tells us that he does not know the date or the time of the end mm -hmm. and that only the Father knows. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and that's so significant to me because it's in, in a sense that Jesus, I mean, if you were Jesus, I mean, don't we all want to know when for sure, right? I mean, oh, it's an obsession. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and with the, our culture, for sure. And yet Jesus says, I don't need to know. That's up to the Father. And that, so there's such humility in that. And then one of the things that I thought was, very interesting about what I read was uh, Barclay, and he, he was of the opinion that those who are predicting the date are really behaving in a blasphemous manner because when Jesus Christ himself says, nobody knows, I don't know, I don't know, only the Father knows, and you're out there telling them the date, Okay, that there's some, there, that's, that's some really dangerous uh, theology to be treading upon because Jesus is telling us he doesn't know and it's only up to Yeah, the and I mean, I think he's actually rebuking people in, in his time that was Yes, that. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was, that's one of the things that got him. They were so disappointed with him, right? Like Judas, you know, Judas was just, desperately disappointed he this thought what i signed up for yeah I, you know i hitched my wagon to a superstar and we're gonna you know conquer the roman empire here and you keep talking about that's not you know my calling that's not what i'm here to do right and uh, that that also moves into an interesting kind of i think there's a preparation in Mark's curating of how he's telling these stories next to each other, there's a way in which Mark is preparing the reader for the Garden of Gethsemane. Because if you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the things that he, Jesus is doing is he's doing that prayer of travail where he's, he's weeping and, and crying tears of blood. And before that, what he does is tell the disciples to stay up and to watch, okay? Right. And actually, Jesus is doing, like, in grief, in times of travail, a, a great practice, uh, a prayer practice was to pray three times a day like Daniel did in Babylon. So Jesus is practicing in the spirit of, of, of prayer, intercessory prayer, and he's speaking to his Father, and this is in one of the climactic moments, and the disciples are sleeping, right? And so... That, that, in this, remember how in this text it's talking about, you don't know when it's coming. You will not know the time nor the place, but you need to always be ready. Yeah. Right? And so, that, that's saying this, escal this eschatological, I cannot say that word, era is already being ushered in. 
And therefore, like you said, time is just different now. And we are, like, we run a different play, as my dad as a basketball coach knows. At the end of the game, you run a different kind of play than you do during the middle of the game. This is the urgent moment of the game, and you're running the most important play that you think's going to get the urgent uh, need, you know, score the points that are urgently needed. And I think that that's the, the tone by which Jesus says disciples will, will carry themselves in this, this era. It's like, hey, maybe we fell a little bit asleep at the wheel, you know, in American Christianity or European Christianity. And now we're being awoken to the ways in which when Jesus was praying a prayer of travail because of the urgent moment, like the church had fallen asleep to major issues of our time. And therefore, we threw out God for whatever, you know, we have now. And so anyways, I like that, that, that kind of like out of this, this moment, there's some real interesting things to return to out of understanding the apocalypse that for a long time, I think I was just kind of like, I don't know, that seems uncomfortable. Well, you know, and the other yeah. thing is, and I'm much closer to this than you, is we all face our own apocalypse. Right, sure. And yeah. so, you know, and, and I think right. Jesus, he, he specifically rejected the powers of this world, you know, position. And he came for individual souls. You know, he wasn't concerned about the government so much. You know, render under Caesar that's which is Caesar's. You know, the, so my favorite quote that I've told you many times, but I'll repeat here, is uh, from C.S. Lewis. And the great revelation in his life was that he realized that the survival of a human soul is more significant than the survival of a nation because nations come and go but a soul is immortal mm -hmm. so i think in the context of when we talk about the end times and you know we also look at you know time is irrelevant to god mm -hmm. so that he's looking at the end for each one of us as souls mm -hmm. and that's that's jesus's concern that's his place of love and so where he's saying, you know, watch out. Because, you know, for each one of us in all of time, there's an end. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all going there's to end. There's an urgency for everybody. Yeah, yeah. And, and so we, have our, we all face our own personal apocalypse. Yeah, I know. Yeah, we don't <laughs> like it, right? We don't, you know. Right. You know, and the other thing that hasn't happened to you yet, but, you know, is you start to f feel it a little bit. You oh, know? I got low back problems right <laughs> now. Well, yeah, but let me tell you. <laughs> but, you know, so but you start to th think of that or realize it, and one of the things you want to do, like I've always done, is try and, you know, stay in shape and, you know, run, you know, sort of outrun it, you know, you know? And, 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 well... I can't really run anymore. 
And, and so it is going to catch up to me, and it's going to catch up to all of us. And that's, I think, part of what really what Jesus is talking about here is, is that you really have to live your life like you know you're going to die. Mm-hmm. Live like you know you're dying. Mm-hmm. And that way you're in service if you do because you're concentrating on the things of the heavenly realms. That's what he really wants you to do as opposed to our day-to-day existence or our personal advancement or ambition and what it is that you know we may get out of this, what pleasure we might get out of this day, you know, what success, what more money, you know, whatever it is that this world has to offer is like, no, you don't see it. You're going to end, right? And right. it's coming pretty soon. Yeah, and I, and you know, one of the things since we're in such a kind of provocative, like startling text here is that and i think that's what we really connect with in the pandemic era it's like that's the thing maybe god could do is that look some ways in which we lose out on understanding our own urgent need for god is through comfort right and so maybe god like the this is a part we don't like but the pruning the the destruction, you know, the death, the, all that is a way to call true disciples forward and to call people into, and to save them, to save them from these things that ultimately would maybe never connect them to God. And and security, right? That our culture has gone. The myth of security. Safety, right? right? Or safety and security and the reliance on security systems and weapons yeah. and you know things are so different when i was a kid there are no seatbelts, mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i mean you know today if you if like right sure you know my but my kids my, in their your, contraptions your kids my grandchildren you know you know <laughs> glory and remy aren't in you know just encased in <laughs> titanium when they're in the car right it's against the law right you, you know because we increasingly as a culture are trying to avoid any possibility of death, you know, that we can sort of make ourselves secure or safe right. from it. But See, no matter what we do... Okay, so watch this. So watch this. So Marsha McLuhan has this really brilliant concept about technological and advancements. And one of them is about security systems. Um, and so, like, you know, in the old times there's a moat, right, that would protect the castle. Right, yeah. Okay, so there would be a sieging army. How do you protect yourself? You build a huge wall, you put a moat in, right? But most technological advances, these are forms of uh, media that, it, that are an industry that develop. But over time, they invert on themselves and expose a vulnerability. So in that case, okay, great, we have a wall and a moat. But let's say there's a fire that happens inside of the city. Now we have trapped ourselves inside of the city. Okay, so watch now. Put it in modern form. This is like a Shane Hips concept. So put it in a modern idea. Security cameras. So security cameras are there to protect us from bad things outside. 
But what they've done is inverted on themselves and made us a surveillance culture. And now all of our privacy is being invaded. Yeah, you know, right? that, that is so right on because I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've had clients come in because I'm a criminal defense attorney and the evidence against them is their own video. <laughs> okay, so they right. videotaped themselves, right. you know, committing a crime. Right. Or some, doing something. Right. You know, you know, so the and these are forms of apocalypse. It's like what was supposed to keep us safe and yeah. comfortable has actually been disrupted and caused us harm. So I think the greatest one of those is um, right now we're seeing is the, the globalization of the world. Because, right, the globalization of the world, how wonderful that we can be connected to somebody across the seas. We share the internet culture. We share um, you know, everything that's good about our culture. And we have these intermixing of cultures. Okay, but then we're, it's exposed. What is beautiful is also exposed through COVID-19 because it's like, look, everyone on earth is interconnected. This is the first time everybody is having the same the problem same issue, yeah. ever in human history yeah. because we have access, we fly everywhere, we, we, we interrelate yeah. so much that we have a global pandemic that was never possible before. This is the first time this has ever been possible in the way that it's happening, where the world would have one problem that it all shares. Therefore, we're going through some form of revelation and apocalypse to say the very thing that we brought into the world through our own technological advancements in some maybe forms of the Tower of Babel, like is right. now inverting on us. Or that technology right. of surveillance yeah. is an antichrist in right. an image. Okay, so like for instance, if you look at authoritarian regimes, the best example right now being China, where you know they're basically monitoring everything their citizens do all the time. And so, I, I, Dane Sealing is a friend you know well, and he's been doing a lot of work in China and the people he's been working with were in Hong Kong. Well, you know, if they were to say something like, gee, it's a shame uh, that COVID started in China because it's hard on business, and they sent out an email like that, well, then somebody from the Communist Party says, you violated the censorship rules. You're going offline for a month in punishment for writing something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the level of control. And then, you know, recently their leader has tried to elevate himself essentially to, a, you know, the level of the emperors who were worshipped. Uh -huh. Okay, and and so you know this it's this a form of power. Yeah, and, and war. And, and, That's where our wars happen. Yeah, and the power through technology, the ability to control billions of you know people is and silence them, right. and silence them right. because you know and there's no hiding. Right. That that you take away the megaphone. Yeah, and of yet the internet. what what's it's so inspiring is the church, it, it's largely believed that there are more Christians in China than there are in the United States now. And that the church is actually prospering in secret 
like they used to do in the catacombs before Constantine and you know the Council of Nicene and when the Roman Empire was oppressing them. And, and part of what Jesus may well be talking about here is the, uh, you know, the prophecies of, you know, you're going to be flogged in the synagogues, you're going to be, you, you're going to be hated for my name. Well, you, you know, you had the martyrs who literally went into the Colosseum and were torn apart by wild beasts, and they did it with smiles on their face. Uh, and, you know, they, and their courage in doing that inspired those in the, in the galleries watching it to such extent that it led within, you know, 300 years to you know, the Christian church being accepted by the Emperor Constantine. And so it, it's incredible how the Christianity perseveres and prevails in autocratic, severely cruel nations. Right, and I think maybe that's one of the things that gives it its um, staying power, right? It, and I mean, because you know of its authenticity, but also I think it's interesting to see how actually Christianity is at its most vibrant in contrast to empire. And when it becomes a, a house cat, it actually is at its weakest Comfort. When it's in, in the power seat, yep. in the driving seat. But when it's a creative minority, it, it has that Daniel in Babylon, Jesus on the streets, you know, kind of uh, sensibility to it. That is definitely discussed in here. Yeah. How basically, and I think that's that remnant kind of concept. It's like, look, there may be less of us, but those of us who are, are still around, we still mean it. Like a lot of pastors notice like, okay, we go to online worship, right? Well, who decides to go to church online? The people that are most connected to their church, right. not passive Christians, you know, that are looking for something. People that are finding these worship services online are finding it because they are looking for God and they want to worship. And that might be less people but those people who are pursuing that, they've endured a test and they've stayed faithful to a new form because they knew it was about God all along. And I think that that's the type of test that produces a deeper disciple at the end of it if you're willing to go through and continue to worship even in a difficult season. And then there are others that maybe were here for the accoutrements or whatever they were, social clout or whatever. And of course, nobody's there to watch them worship now. So they're not gonna be there, you know? And, and so I think that, you know, th these types of things are really valuable to understand. And I also think it could, has the opportunity for some revival because what, what ends up happening is that that because we're going through such tumult that people are seeing the exposing of the way we've been doing things. It's like, this is what secularism has brought to our doorstep. Are you at the end of this? Are you exhausted by it? You know, like, look at, the, look at this moment we're in. And, and um, there's 
a guy named Mark Sayers that I've been reading his book, and he locates this in historical terms too, where um, you know the the Great Awakening in the 18th century was actually uh, precluded by like the late 17th century was a time where they were predicting there would be no more Christianity in the world because enlightenment thinking had come to supersede any sort of traditional church. And, you know, in Cambridge, there was total debauchery going around on and, and all of these things. And, and out of that crisis actually brought the, the Great Awakening into existence. And one of the ways that it did that was Wesley, who had failed as a missionary to America, is on a ship on his way home. He meets some Moravians, these radical Europeans that on a farm, only 300 of them started a prayer, 24-7 prayer and generated some of the greatest missionaries of all time. But one of them they converted was Jonathan Wesley. And Wesley, out of that conversion, came home and completely brought forward this whole new uh, great awakening to the church. So, you know, I, f I think that that's interesting to pay attention to in this moment of crisis, too, is to say, what is the next thing? What is God doing now, preparing the faithful, for whatever that is? And can we lean into the test and the trial and to say, this difficulty may generate the kind of next leader that is going to bring forward a new revival in the church? You know? Yes, I, you know, crisis, with crisis, there is opportunity. Yeah. And the thing is, is, is that I don't ever see it within Christendom or certainly within the scriptures, is that the nature of the opportunity or what you're seeking is conventional. So like we just been talking before we got on here about, you know, a church that is, is going to make a massive investment in the uh, technology, okay? Because that right now is hot. Right? That's, that's how you're going to succeed. And it's, it's having everything that technology offers in your church here. Okay? That is, is the, the way the big churches are really making it and how it's happening. And I don't think that there's anything about, you know, true Christianity or what Christ taught us that was conventional like that that the, the seeking after the things of the world, that, that somehow that is what's going to work for yeah. the church, especially in the long run. So I follow some churches that are in a lot of, they're millennial churches. They're what you would deem as, you know, the, the millennial cool church. But all they talk about is how pursuing relevance is bankrupt if you actually want to reach a secular culture. Because all you get in being cool and relevant is other Christians from other churches that are consumer-minded right. and want the next cool fad and trend. And they point to true revivals. True revivals are about fervent prayer, staying close to the Holy Spirit, not attaching yourself to any modality, like actually being a dedicated disciple of Jesus Christ and calling people into 
forms of taking on the yoke of Jesus and living into the way of Jesus. Um, and whatever form of worship that takes, whatever God wants to do, that's what matters. But pursuing the relevance for relevance sake alone is, is just a thing we've seen to lower the bar to create consumer Christianity and to say, actually, no, I think what people want more than anything else is to the real thing. So however we get to the real thing, if it looks cheesy, if it looks, you know, however it looks, what we're looking for is a house of prayer. When Jesus comes in, he's kicking out all of the corrupt financial stuff, and he's saying, this is a house of prayer. Are we doing that? You know, the fundamental stuff, that's the callback, that's, that's victory outreach in the tent church in the streets. That's just a reminding, this is what we're here to do. And I think especially in a moment of crisis, prayer, intercessory prayer, and the Holy Spirit are essential, you know. I love your tent. And one of the things I love about it is, is and you don't get to see this because you're up there preaching and you're in the back, but people walk by and they stop and look. <laughs> I know, I've seen a couple okay? of Okay, yeah. some of them walk through the parking lot. But who would but, do that? But, but it, I'll tell you who, a courageous congregation and pastor, that's who, okay? Because that took courage to do that. And it takes it every week because you know, what if somebody doesn't like it? What if the neighbors complain? You know, there's all kinds of reasons why you wouldn't do that. And yet, you know, part of it is, is you're no longer encased in this building you're out there in public and the and people in your neighborhood are seeing who you are and that is is symbolic of something that is much greater than our brick and mortar buildings that you know everybody's used to just driving by but on sunday morning you know they're hearing some tent preacher in their neighborhood you know now that's different. Right, and it's interesting too, like one of the defining things of our church for most people that don't go to our church for good reason is they just see a line of people getting food on Tuesdays and Thursdays right. and getting cared for. Yeah. So they know, oh, that's the church that takes care of people that are homeless. It's because it's the only visible thing. Yeah, that they, they see you. They right. see yeah. you, right. you know? Right. And that's a real big problem that our beautiful sanctuaries Right. Uh, prevent right. The, the rest of the world from seeing who we are. Okay, well, I've, we've had a good conversation here today. Thank <laughs> we'll probably you, do this late into the night, like we <laughs> yeah. have many times. All right, you're going to pray us out? Um, certainly, I would be honored. Thank Absolutely. you. Oh, dear Lord, I, I just thank you for the honor of being here. Um, I pray you look after my son in his ministry in this very difficult time in this beautiful, magnificent church and this loving, holy congregation that I have seen that is in service to you, that is, works so hard to follow you. And we just ask that you bless this church, these people who are in this moment of opportunity in the midst of crisis. Give them courage, give them the Holy Spirit, Lord, the Holy Spirit that will speak for them as the scripture has told us that Jesus said to his disciples, do not worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will tell you what to say.
Lord, we just ask that you give us that Holy Spirit and that there be a new day, a new awakening in our land and in this church, that it'll be a great beacon of light to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. See you, everybody.